Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. New parents and doctors are working as a team to reduce C-sections inside a New England hospital. So you've got, you know, three people who have to come together and become a very high-performing team in a really short period of time for one of the most important moments in a person's life. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll go inside the delivery room to hear the Team Birth Project in action. Plus, researchers take on a new public health challenge. The most frequent cause of death in the lobster fishing community is falls overboard. Saving lives at sea. And we'll talk about New England's rich history with the ocean from a classic novel. When we're trying to promote New Bedford and sell New Bedford, as soon as we say Moby Dick, you know, the light bulb goes on. If you let Moby Dick into your life, it changes your life. And the golden age of pirates. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to take you back through some of our favorite stories of 2018, and there were a lot of really good stories from around New England. Here's one of our favorites. In the U.S. in 2016, about 32% of all deliveries were by cesarean, or as it's better known, C-section. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For mothers who deliver children by C-section, there are greater risks involved, and oftentimes the surgery is not a medical necessity. In our region, more than 35% of all live births in Connecticut were cesareans. That's one of the top five rates in the country. In contrast, Vermont boasts one of the lower rates, about 26% of cesarean births. There's a new project, though, working to change these numbers. Dr. Atul Gawande's Ariadne Labs is working on an initiative to drive the numbers of C-sections even lower. To tell this story, we're going to take you to a place that we usually don't get to, inside the delivery room during a birth. The mother from Hanover, Massachusetts, already had four children when she delivered twin boys on the last day of August, right around dinner time. WBUR's Martha Biebinger takes us to South Shore Hospital in Weymouth, where Melissa and Sean McDougall have just checked in. Melissa McDougall is propped up in bed, blonde hair pulled into a neat bun, makeup still fresh. She's ordered a sub, turkey, ham, and provolone with mayo, when her regular obstetrician, who's on duty today, pops in. How are you? You're going to have babies today. Are you excited? Yes. Dr. Ruth Levesque claps her hands, chats a bit, and reviews steps she's discussed with the McDougals many times. Melissa will be given Pitocin, a drug to induce labor. The first twin expected out, Brady, is head down, positioned for a normal vaginal delivery. Levesque turns to Sean McDougall, a tall, lanky man who can barely contain his excitement. So you're catching the first one. I'm going to be gloved with you just because no, I, I have a degree. We'll see what happens with Baby B. Baby B, to be named Bryce, is the boy who will really test what's called the Team Birth Project and one of its main goals, fewer cesarean sections. Right now, Bryce is horizontal across the top of Melissa's uterus. Babies do not come out sideways. 
That's one reason Melissa may be headed for a C-section. And there's another, says Dr. Levesque. Melissa delivered a daughter, now four, by cesarean. She has a scar in her uterus, so there's a risk of uterine rupture. Very rare, but there's always a possibility. And possibly a greater risk for Melissa, who is 37 and is having twins. But the McDougals want vaginal deliveries for both boys. I just feel like it's better for the kids, better for the babies. And better for most moms. About half of all cesareans are considered avoidable. They are the focus of the Team Birth Project designed by Dr. Neil Shaw and colleagues at Ariadne Labs in Boston, now in the testing phase at South Shore Hospital. Shaw begins with an acknowledgement. Childbirth is complicated. You've got two patients, the mother and the baby, and an ad hoc, often shifting team that at a minimum includes the mom, a nurse, and a doctor. So you've got, you know, three people who have to come together and become a very high-performing team in a really short period of time for one of the most important moments in a person's life. And this team has to perform at its best during an unpredictable event, labor. Shaw says doctors and nurses are sure of some things, like when a mom is in active labor. And much of the time they agree about when a mom can have a vaginal delivery and when she needs a C-section. And then there's this huge gray zone. And actually everything about the Team Birth Project is about solving for the gray. The Team Birth Project solution includes an individual childbirth plan for every woman at South Shore laid out on a whiteboard divided into sections. The hospital's OB chief, Dr. Kim Dever, shows me one a few days before Melissa McDougall arrives. The first column talks about the team, defined as the patient, most important, their support person, the nurse taking care of the patient, and then the provider or providers. Names are added and erased as family members come and go and nurses change shifts. Then the next column talks about the plan. And we again break it down into those three important factors, the maternal, the fetal, and the progress. The mother, baby, and the labor are tracked as three separate elements of a delivery. A mom with high blood pressure may need special attention, but that doesn't mean she can't have a normal delivery. A section called Next Assessment lets moms know what to expect. One of the most important pieces we put on there is when are we going to next assess the patient? When we leave the room, they kind of know what's next. Back in the McDougal's room, Dr. Levesque has a green dry erase marker poised over a category labeled patient preferences that will guide Melissa's delivery. Melissa, specific things besides babies on your chest, Sean helping with delivery, other specific things that are important to you guys? Perfect, absolutely, yep. So I'm going to write that. So skin to skin, epidural. Everyone settles in to wait. About four hours later, Melissa isn't yet feeling contractions. Dr. Levesque breaks the water sack around Brady. Looks nice and clear. Yeah. Hi, bud. Come on and hang out with us. Tipping this little kiddo's head. Whenever you start getting uncomfortable and you think you want an epidural, we'll do an epidural at that point. An epidural is Melissa's preference, but it's her doctor's, too. In fact, they insisted that Melissa agree to be numbed from the waist down if she wants to deliver Bryce vaginally. OBs may need to turn the baby, find a foot, and pull Bryce out, causing pain most women would not tolerate. (laughs) Enter Dr. Terry Marino, a high-risk OB who specializes in delivering babies positioned like Bryce. Marino has been seeing Melissa regularly, along with Dr. Levesque. Sean asks if they'll all pose for a picture with Melissa. Can we make funny faces? I want you to. <laughs> I would love for you to. Can you Snapchat You guys are like her favorite people on the planet. As the hours tick by, nurse Barbara Fatemi checks Melissa's pain level. Okay, don't hold your breath. Breathe, relax. Melissa says she can tolerate a lot of pain, 
But Sean tells Fatemi he sees the strain in his wife's face. Fatemi acts on Sean's assessment, something he says later reinforces his feeling that they're a team. Are you getting uncomfortable and you'd like to consider having that epidural placed right now? (laughs) Okay. When it's in, but before the drugs start flowing, Melissa gets up to go to the bathroom. She returns looking scared, color draining from her face. Fatemi calls Dr. Levesque. While in the bathroom, Melissa felt the urge to push. I was not expecting that. So much pressure. I mean, it didn't feel anything until I went to the bathroom. Really shaking. Are you okay? You, my friend, are 10 centimeters. Melissa has to move quickly now into an operating room. She'll deliver both babies there in case Bryce doesn't shift and she needs a last-minute cesarean. I'll see you in a few minutes. No pushing without me, okay? As nurses roll Melissa down the hall, she has one question for Sean. Did you talk to my mom? Yeah, she knows. We're good. Almost five years ago, two women wheeled into South Shore operating rooms during childbirth died. Both had C-sections. State investigators found no evidence of substandard care. But Dr. Dever says the hospital scrutinized everything. I think when you have something like that happen, that um, expedites your efforts um, exponentially. Now, Dever says she sees an opportunity through the Team Birth Project to model changes that could help women far and wide. I would love women everywhere to be able to come in and have a safe birth and a healthy baby. If someone said, why are you doing this, that's why I'm doing it. So we're in at 1712. But the Team Birth Project is about to be pushed to its limits by tiny Bryce McDougall. First, though, Melissa must push out Bryce's brother, Brady. Okay, you ready? Grab this hand for me. Ready? Curl down. Push like heck. Bent nearly in half, her face beat red, Melissa strains for five pushes. She throws up and gets back at it. Oh, my goodness. Oh, Brady. Look at that. Oh, oh hello. Hello. Sean steps back, weeping. Dr. Marino takes his place next to Dr. Levesque, who has reached inside Melissa. Her mission is to grab Bryce's feet and guide him out. But everything feels like fingers, not toes. That's a hand. Yeah. That's a hand, too. Dr. Marino rolls an ultrasound across Melissa's belly, hoping the scan will show a foot. But Bryce's feet are out of sight and out of reach. Feels like a hand. Yeah, a hand. All I have is hands. Dr. Marino, who has more experience with transverse babies, asks to try. She reaches into Melissa's uterus while Dr. Levesque moves to Melissa's right side and starts using her forearm to shift Bryce to push him down. Dr. Dever, the head of OB, has come in and takes over the ultrasound. At least six doctors and nurses encircle Melissa, whose face is taut. Sean frowns. Can you be okay? Melissa nods. Bryce's heart rate is steady, but there's still no sign of a foot. His hands are so close, one slips out. Dr. Marino nudges it back in. Dr. Marino has asked to open the table, meaning the array of surgical instruments next to Melissa's bed Marino will use to perform a C-section if necessary. Then, Dr. Marino asks me to stop recording. For 36 seconds, this room with more than a dozen adults grows oddly quiet, while Dr. Marino twists her arm this way and that, determined to find Bryce's feet. Dr. Levesque leans hard into Melissa's belly. 
Sean bites his lip. Then, Marino yanks at something, and there's her gloved, bloody hand clutching two teensy legs. Okay, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Sean is weeping again. Melissa manages an exhausted giggle. Bryce keeps everyone waiting a few more seconds and then howls. Outside the OR, doctors Levesque and Marino look relieved and elated. Both agree that most doctors would have delivered Bryce by C-section. But here, the McDougals had a hospital that has challenged itself to perform fewer C-sections. And a doctor with experience in these unusual deliveries, one who knew the parents' preference. You know, they specifically wanted to have vaginal delivery of both babies. And are you thinking that in that moment? Yep. You're searching for the... Absolutely. Absolutely. Bryce was fine, says Marino. So the deciding factor was that Sean and Melissa did not panic. They did not flinch. They were like, keep going. Because sometimes patients will say, stop. And then you have, you stop. Sean says he came close in that last minute before Bryce was born. It was pretty aggressive. But Sean says feeling that he and Melissa were part of the team in that moment made a difference. I think it made us more comfortable. And what did that translate into? Trust. That we trust the decisions that they were making. Melissa says she's grateful for the vaginal delivery. I did not want to have to have it natural and C-section. I know, that'll be a brutal recovery. Now, 30 minutes after Dr. Marino pulled Bryce out of her, Melissa is nursing Brady and FaceTiming with the in-laws. Hey, Pa. <laughs> Thank you. I'm proud of you. Good Thank job. you. They're beautiful. South Shore began using the team birth approach in April. The test period will run for two years. In the first four months, by one measure, the hospital's C-section rate has dropped from 31 to 27 percent, or about four fewer C-sections each month. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. If you want to see some amazing behind-the-scenes photos, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll learn about efforts to build a better life jacket. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Commercial fishermen in New England are required to have life jackets on their boats, but they're rarely, if ever, worn. That's a dangerous practice for lobstermen. In Massachusetts, falls overboard are the leading cause of death while on the job. Now a research team is trying to change that outcome by changing the life jackets, not the fishermen. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri has the story. Steve Holler and Franklin Artis are hauling in a lobster trap. They lean over the edge of the boat and dump its contents into a holding tray. Lenardis hauls the 50-pound trap to the back of the boat, rope trailing behind him. It's a dance between me and him. Him getting that done, me getting this done, because of his weight, his strength, he'll knock me right on my rear end. And he's done it a few times. Over the course of the day, they repeat this dance 300 times. Today, everything goes smoothly, but Holler remembers one day in February when a routine haul went very wrong. A few traps had frozen to the deck. So I was tugging and tugging and tugging with a, with a hook to try and free them up, and they did free up 
and I had lost my balance and I was falling backwards. The fall launched Holler into the freezing Boston Harbor. It's an absolute shock. First, you say, in a split second, you're saying, I can't believe this is happening. And then what sets in is like, I've got to get out of the water, but your body has got a whole different idea. He managed to grab the last rung of a ladder on the dock and pull himself to safety. Holler wasn't wearing a life jacket, and today, out in the middle of the water, he isn't wearing one either. For many lobstermen like Holler, life jackets get in the way of their work. Never even considered it. That's Peter Fredrickson. He's been fishing for over 40 years. Big, bulky life jackets, number one, you can't work in them, and number two, it's hot. And on a day like today, to have anything else besides shirts and a T-shirt and your, your rain pants is going to be miserable. So no, I hadn't given it a thought. The most frequent cause of death in the lobster fishing community is falls overboard. Julie Sorensen is with the Northeast Center for Occupational Health and Safety. A 16-year study from the Centers for Disease Control found that in every fatal fall, the lobsterman was not wearing a life jacket. But Sorensen acknowledges the barriers to use. In addition to the heat, bulk, and high costs, they can run between $80 and $200, some of the styles with buckles can get caught in traps, making the job even more dangerous. So Sorensen determined it's the life jackets that have to change. I think you need to assume that people are doing the best they can and that maybe what we need to do as public health researchers is make it easier and more rewarding for them to do the safer thing or the healthier thing. Sorensen launched a research project aimed at redesigning the life jackets. She and her team recruited 181 lobstermen in Massachusetts and in Maine to wear different types of life jackets for four to six weeks. Both Peter Fredrickson and his son Josh, who works as Peter Sternman, participated in the study. Josh says they were given versions that clipped around their waists. If you live through the 90s, it's like a fanny pack, basically. The small pack has a CO2 cartridge that deploys if you pull the ripcord, inflating the pack. It's a far cry from the old orange horseshoe vests, but Peter Fredrickson says it's still not perfect. The belt loosens up and it falls off. It wasn't easy to clean and you get dirty on a lobster boat, but it worked. Those issues and other feedback from the study are now with the manufacturers, who will use it to reevaluate the designs. The researchers plan to start phase two next summer, using social media and community events to get more lobstermen interested in the new jackets. They may not win over everyone. Back on his boat, Steve Holler says if there was a design that didn't get in his way, he might consider it. But life jackets just aren't his main concern. I don't think of it that much. There's more hazards on the boat. I could lose fingers. I could get some serious lacerations with the knives, uh, hand injuries, leg injuries. Falling overboard is on my mind, but it's not at the very top, sadly to say. But for the Fredericksons, the study changed their minds. I'm going to wear it all the time now. You know, I'm 65 years old. I get up on the gunnel, and my balance isn't what it once was. I, I feel like this. I, I've never gone over the side, knock on wood, but I could. So it makes sense. Peter Fredrickson hopes others will take advantage of the new jackets as well. Because lobstermen never think they're going over until the moment they do. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Hannah Schnatry. The only state with a significant fishery for transparent glass eels, otherwise known as elvers, is in Maine. They can fetch thousands of dollars a pound when shipped to Japan, China, or other Asian countries where they're grown to market size. Now there's one entrepreneur in Maine who wants to add the value herself. Growing eels to full size here, it's a first for the U.S. As part of his series, Aquaculture's Next Wave, Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports that this startup, American Unagi, is showing early signs of success. 
When the elver season opens each spring, Maine fisherman Justin Jordan likes to try one out. I eat the first elver that I catch every year just for good luck for the season. It's a little slimy and it's a little salty like the water, but it doesn't taste like much because they're so small. Sushi lovers will tell you that full-grown eels, called unagi, are pretty tasty. That's why Sarah Rademacher started growing eels a few years ago in her Thomaston basement. So it was like dingy stones, you know, dirt floor, and a glorified large aquarium with a couple of tanks. And also we had um, butchered a pig, so that was hanging. It was quite quite the, <laughs> the scene with like an exposed light bulb. <laughs> the scene today is a little less macabre. Last month, Rademacher took over this indoor recirculating aquaculture system at a University of Maine research center on the Mount Desert Narrows in Franklin. It's a small warehouse with rows of shoulder-high circular green tanks, pumps, and hoses, plus some proprietary technology Rademacher is developing. The tanks brim with wriggling eels, some pencil-thin, some fat as cigars. We've got thousands in this tank, thousands of fat little eels. Eels are actually fish with fins and gills. If you look close, they almost have little puppy dog eyes and a little smile uh, with their, the way their jaw is shaped. Rademacher drops in a pinch of microalgae and fish meal. She says the right feed is essential to the flavor and protein content that will make them marketable and happy. That's a sign of a happy eel. When they swarm and feed really excitedly, almost splashing the water. These eels, like all Anguilla rostrata, started out in the Sargasso Sea off Bermuda. They spawn there, and then those larval eels, when they hatch, they just drift on the currents. So again, they don't know if they're going to land in the Caribbean or Canada. Or in a fisherman's nets at the mouth of a river in Maine. Wild eel populations are under stress worldwide, and many countries are restricting harvests. But Rademacher recently won federal permission for Maine's elver fishermen to exceed their annual quota by 200 pounds, which she will raise to maturity. She hopes to sell 20,000 pounds this year. The question is, who will eat all that American unagi? Wait a few minutes now. The patrons of Sammy's Deluxe Restaurant in downtown Rockland, for one. Owner and chef Sam Richmond doesn't serve it up sushi style, though. Instead, he smokes it. European style. It honestly winds up tasting not dissimilar to a mild kielbasa or a mild bacon. It's really juicy. Richmond says customers are intrigued. Because of the really great story of American Unagi and everybody's familiar with elvers and the value of that fishery. So it's sort of people know about them but haven't really eaten them. So I think they're eager to, to give it a try. They'll be joining a growing world population that's hungry for more and more seafood and increasingly able to pay for it. And in the U.S., domestic supply is nowhere near meeting demand. I mean, we already import about 90 percent of our seafood. 90 percent. James Anderson directs the Institute for Sustainable Food Systems at the University of Florida, and he's a former advisor to the World Bank. He says the U.S. needs to step up its efforts to bring aquaculture back home. Our marine aquaculture has made a lot of technical innovations. and In states like Maine, there's been a lot of progress. But elsewhere, it's been almost no growth, and we just have chosen as a nation to depend on imports. 
Back in Franklin, Rademacher is doing her part to change the equation and trying to capture some of the value that's right now going abroad. She's already lined up investors for a full-scale commercial facility in the Midcoast. That's our goal. This is a stepping stone to our commercial production. We're planning on being online next year. She says she can boost output more than tenfold, selling more than 250,000 pounds of eel in the U.S. next year at as much as $25 a pound. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, how New England contributed to the golden age of piracy. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Every beach community has a story about a shipwreck, a boat that didn't make it back to port. These stories mostly exist as folklore, not as current events. But just a few years ago, in 2015, a giant container ship sank on a routine route between Florida and Puerto Rico during Hurricane Joaquin. Thirty-three mariners died in this wreck, eight of whom were from New England. Boston-based journalist Rachel Slade digs into causes of this wreck, as well as the history and future of the global shipping industry, in her new book, Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm, and the Sinking of the Alfaro. Rachel Slade, welcome to Next. Thank you so much. So what's at the root of this? Whenever a a ship goes straight into a hurricane, you can imagine a lot of reasons why, maybe some sort of failure of communication, some sort of breakdown, or, or as you chronicle, a lot of pressures to get this cargo from one place to the other. What, what are the main causes of why this happened? When I started writing this book, I thought of the working title as How Many Mistakes Does It Take to Sink a Ship? And the answer is almost countless. But there are a few major factors here. One of them, yes, absolutely, it was there was pressure on this captain. Um, he had recently been passed over for a promotion. He felt his job slipping away from him. That was one thing that was on him. The other problem was the forecasting of this hurricane. This particular hurricane um, ended up being one of the anomalies for the National Hurricane Center. And in fact, their forecasts were um, historically off for this particular storm. They thought that it would cut north, as most of our storms do in the Atlantic, and this one didn't. It defied their predictions. It went southwest. It continued going southwest. It moved very slowly. In fact, it really lumbered. It was moving at about four knots for days, and it just sat there feasting off of the very warm waters of the Atlantic, unusually hot waters of the Atlantic that time of year. Maybe you can give us an overview just how big and how important the shipping industry is to the United States right now. So we think of the Internet as connecting us all. That's only partly true. In fact, the backbone of the global economy is shipping. And it's not just American shipping. It's global shipping. 
90%, it's estimated, of everything that we touch from the clothes on our backs to the parts in our car to the phone in your pocket, 90% of everything that we own spent some time on a container ship. So you can just imagine how important shipping is. And when you think about what happened to Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, when the ships were having trouble getting through and they were having trouble then on the island distributing goods once they landed in port, even now you can see um, when when logistics are down, chaos can ensue. Mm. I, I want to go back to the, the early days of, of New England and its role in the shipping industry. You write that New Englanders were global citizens. Southern planters waited for the world to come to them. We think about the early American colonies being split between the North and the South and all of the the stuff that the South had to offer the world, cotton and tobacco. But you write that New Englanders had little to sell but an intrepid spirit. I, I love that idea. To Tell us more about that. <laughs> I don't know how the Southern, Southerners feel about this, but I know I'm talking <laughs> to friends here. So, um, yeah, the, the South was really not terribly interested in logistics, but man, the Northerners really were. I mean, when we first arrived here or when, when those folks who did first arrived here, you know, we didn't really have arable soil, um, or the soil wasn't that great. The winters were very harsh. And so although they weren't naturally mariners, the original New Englanders, turned to the one place that offered them opportunity, which was, of course, through shipping and through fishing. So that's why we developed this huge whaling industry, first in Nantucket, then in Martha's Vineyard and, and New Bedford. Um, but we also became the world shippers. Now, what was great about being a New England shipper before um, the establishment of the United States was that they could kind of go rogue. You know, they were they were nominally citizens of Britain, we were so far away that they felt like they could open up new trade routes and not to worry too much about the crown catching up to them. And so actually, a lot of the big families first were known in Salem, Newburyport, and, and Boston for sailing around South America up along the, the Pacific Northwest, picking up furs from the Native Americans there, and then trading in Canton and other places in Asia. Those were routes that, that nobody else had really invested in before the colonists put, put their sails to the wind. And that really shaped all of that history that you just laid out. It really shaped what uh, New England, uh, Massachusetts, Maine, Connecticut, and, and Rhode Island, what what these places actually looked like. There was, there was more of a, a global flavor. There were, were more products and more people coming from all over the world. The, the shipping industry, I, I assume, Rachel, really, really shaped what our entire region is, is like. Absolutely. I, I think they were, if you will, more sophisticated than, than other folks down the coast. I also am fascinated by the idea that there was a tremendous amount of social mobility in that model because, you know, there was no uh, standardized investment system. And so essentially communities would invest in these ships. And originally, no matter who you were, whether you were the cabin boy or the captain, you had a certain cut of the profits of the ship. So everybody was invested. And that meant that if you had a lucrative run, you could in theory, move up the chain, move up the commanding ladder, and eventually have your own ship. And we see that over and over again. Um, folks in Maine starting out 
just, you know, as as a deckhand 12 years old and then uh, 40 years later retiring as a captain with an enormous house and, and a large family and uh, lots of money in the bank. And sometimes they became very politically powerful as well. I want to spin this forward to to the modern shipping industry and, and talk a bit about some of the pressures facing it. You already talked about one. The storm that took down the El Faro is one of a series of stronger-than-normal hurricanes that have hit the Atlantic Ocean over the course of the last several years. It's caused an enormous amount of damage on land and, as we've seen, also at sea. Climate change is, in part, the cause of this. I'm wondering how the shipping industry is adapting to the the problems of of climate change right now. What I'd like to stress here is that, of course, the oceans have always had this um, warming cycle throughout the summer. The ocean, the Atlantic, collects heat from the sun. That heat is the fuel for hurricanes. A tropical low will come down over the warm waters and then, you know, start sucking up the heat and becoming a cyclone and either dissipating or um, growing stronger into a stronger and stronger hurricane. What is, what's important to understand here is that now we don't just have a warm layer of water in the Atlantic. We have a very deep, hot layer. So that means that when the tropical low begins to form and when the cyclone begins to form, it has a much deeper source of fuel. Joaquin fed off of that depth of heat, um, and that's why it moved so slowly and did not pull north as expected. It just sat there and sat there and sat there because there was so much depth that even as it churned up the oceans, it wasn't getting cooler. It wasn't getting cooler. It was continuing to feed off of the depth of the heat. As much as climate change introduces uncertainty and problems for the shipping industry, there's potentially a, an opportunity opening up because of, of the melting of Arctic ice. Is is there a chance that we've created more shipping lanes that might advantage New England ports in the near future? So this is an absolutely huge story. The ice is melting, and, um, you know, you can look at it any number of ways. I mean, it's certainly um, a sign of, of climate change. But in the next 10 years, it's predicted that we will actually have regular container ship routes from Asia to Europe, cutting across across the Arctic. And that is absolutely huge. It would take only about 22 days to get um, a cargo ship from Japan to Europe. That's, that's, um, that's at least a week less than what it takes right now. I predict that this is going to have an enormous impact on New England because if the, if this becomes a truly viable route, which I assume eventually it will if the ice continues to melt as it is, then Portland is going to start to look a lot like L.A. does now. So right now, of course, ships come to L.A. L.A. is an enormous port. I mean, just it's it's the largest port in America. But they're, they're coming to L.A. and then they're redistributing cargo, putting them on, on smaller ships or now sometimes even bigger ships coming through Panama Canal, coming up to New York and Savannah and um, Houston and all those places. So L.A. is just a, a major feeder port. For, for all of America or all of distribution from Asia. Imagine now that the ships are no longer taking that route and are instead taking the northern route. Will Portland, Maine or Portsmouth, New Hampshire become the next L.A. port? The book is called Into the Raging Sea, 33 Mariners, One Megastorm. 
and the Sinking of El Faro. And the author is Rachel Slade. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. When you think of pirates, you might think of the skull and crossbones flag, wooden legs, parrots, eye patches, and marauders swashbuckling their way through the Caribbean. But New England, or the New England colonies to be specific, actually played a really important role in the golden age of piracy. It's a period that spanned the late 1600s through the early 1700s. That's the subject of Eric J. Dolan's new book, Black Flags, Blue Waters, the Epic History of America's Most Notorious Pirates. He joined us to describe the relationship between pirates and the New England colonies, but he started by telling us some of the remarkable stories of pirates from this golden age, starting with the story of Sam Bellamy and the ship The Witta. Sam Bellamy and Paul's Grave Williams, two pirates that began their lives uh, coming out of New England, headed down to dive on Spanish treasure ships. They failed to get much money that way, so they veered into piracy, and they plundered about 50 ships, but that was nothing compared to when they overtook the Witta. The Witta had just sold 500 slaves in Port Royal on Jamaica, so they were loaded with silver and gold. So when Bellamy and Williams took over the Witta, they suddenly had a jackpot. They headed north, but they wouldn't be able to share the spoils of their success because in April of 1717, while they were sailing around the outstretched arm of Cape Cod, a nor'easter Easter, blew down the coast, smashed into the ship, sank the Witta, 161 pirates on board uh, died, and all of that treasure sank to the bottom. And it stayed there for about 260-some-odd years until a salvager and diver named Barry Clifford and his men actually discovered the location of the Witta, only about 1,000 or 1,500 feet off the coast of Wellfleet on Cape Cod, and they started recovering the treasure. They even found the bell that said the Witta Galley, so they knew they had this treasure. And this is significant because it's the first authenticated pirate ship and treasure ever found, and they've been recovering treasure ever since. Uh, how much the treasure is worth, that's a matter of debate. An unreasonably low estimate is about $200,000. An improbably high estimate is about $400 million. But if you're ever on the Cape in West Yarmouth, there's the Witta Pirate Museum, which does a wonderful job of telling you the story of the Witta and how it, the treasure has been recovered. You, you have a great survival story here. Uh, the man's name is Philip Ashton. Can you tell right. us his story? Yeah, Philip Ashton from my hometown of Marblehead, Massachusetts. He was a fisherman off of Nova Scotia in the summer of 1722 when a notorious, despicable, likely deranged pirate named Edward Lowe captured his fishing vessel and other fishing vessels and forced Ashton, among others, to become pirates. But Ashton was able to escape from the pirates' clutches in the Bay of Honduras, and he landed on Roatan Island, which was an uninhabited island, and he lasted there for almost two years, most of it entirely alone, until a brigantine from Salem, Massachusetts, right next to Marblehead, picked him up, brought him back to Marblehead. When he walked in the front door of his parents' house, they thought that he had risen from the dead because they had long assumed he was gone forever. And his story was a huge story in New England because William Defoe had written a very famous book in 17. 17- 19 called Robinson Crusoe. Well, here it was in 1726 when Ashton comes back from the dead, and he was a real-life Robinson Crusoe, and the Americans could claim him. Well, who were these pirates, and why did they turn to this life? 
Pirates were generally, the pirates that I talk about, were generally of English descent or from the American colonies. There were other uh, countries that were represented as well. And there were any number of reasons that they turned to piracy. All of them at root had one common goal, and that was to get rich. There were tales of pirates in olden days, I mean, before the 1600s and 1700s that I talk about, that had attacked ships and gained considerable treasure. And other pirates sought to emulate them by becoming pirates themselves. There were many ways in which people would turn to piracy. One was after a war had concluded, all of the privateers and naval men who had been engaged in the war, many of them found themselves suddenly unemployed. And uh, especially the privateers who had the skills of a pirate, many of them just transferred uh, almost seamlessly into piracy. Also, many sailors who found their captains to be particularly abusive or dictatorial would often rise up in mutiny. And once they had taken over the ship, they would turn to piracy as well. Another lure to piracy was the sinking of treasure fleets off of uh, Florida coast. People went down there to dive on the treasure fleets to try to recover the treasure. Some were successful, some weren't. But either way, many of them, once in the Caribbean, decided to try their hands at piracy. But pirates were very much like gamblers going into a casino. People always have an over-expectation of success <laughs> and an under-expectation of failure. And most pirates fail to achieve any great riches at all. And many of them died after a relatively short career. But the hope of Plundering a valuable treasure ship was enough to get many men to throw their lot in with their fellow pirates and go to sea to rob whatever ships they could. So, so let's go back to the 1600s and, and early American colonies. And, and I wonder if you can talk about the support that many colonists had for pirates, which in some ways makes, makes a whole lot of sense, but it's a, it's a fairly interesting history. Tell us about this. Right. In the late 1600s, there were these pirates called the Red Seamen, uh, which had sort of replaced the buccaneers of earlier days. And these men would come from the colonies, and they would travel in their ships around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, where they would attack Mughal shipping that was transiting between India and the Red Sea ports of Jeddah and Mocha. And a lot of these pirates came from the colonies. They were the fathers, the sons, the brothers of other colonists. And they brought back valuable and much-needed treasure to the colonies. And the colonies welcomed them back because it was not viewed as being particularly bad to go halfway around the world and attack, quote-unquote, heathens and infidels, rob them of their treasure, and bring it back to the colonies, which were traditionally starved of currency by the mother country and often forced to buy goods with currency. So here was this ready source of money that was being brought back to the colonies by colonists. So they were truly welcomed with open, with open arms. And the pirates needed the colonists' help, too. Right. Pirates, like anybody else, need to have supplies. They need to careen their ships and scrape all the foul matter off the bottom of their ships, and they need a support system. So the colonies in the late 1600s provided the pirates with an extremely valuable support system, much like the Bahamas uh, served in the 1700s as a place for the pirates to repair to, repair their ships, reprovision, divvy up the loot. Colonies were the pirates' home base during the late 1600s. 
were there hotbeds of piracy in the New England colonies, places where where pirates would would hang out and, and be part of the population? Yes, we have to look at the distinction between the 1600s and the 1700s. In the late 1600s, Newport, uh, Boston were definitely places where pirates were paired to. In 1684, the governor of Jamaica noted that Boston was a place where pirates had brought more than 80,000 pounds sterling into the town, and many of them had settled there, and it was considered to be a receptacle of pirates of all nations. Newport as well was known to be a pirate haven during the late 1600s. But what happened after the War of the Spanish Succession? Even though piracy exploded, at this time, the pirates were no longer attacking Indians or Mughal ships halfway around the world. They were attacking English merchant vessels, many of which were issuing from the colonies. So all of a sudden, whereas before the colonists viewed pirates in a favorable light since they were benefiting from the pirates, now those pirates were attacking colonial ships. So that encouraged the colonists to come out against pirates. And as a result, the pirates had no places within the colonies, New England or further to the south, to come in and reprovision and spend their money at grog shops. They were considered persona non grata, and they were forced to go down to the Bahamas. And then finally, in 1718, when the, the Bahamas were retaken by the British Navy, they were sort of at literally and figuratively at sea fighting for themselves, getting more desperate all the time as the government clamped down on them. Eric J. Dolan is the author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. You can find an excerpt of the book on nextnewengland.org. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Finally, we're going to take you to one of the most famous fishing towns in New England, perhaps the world. It was memorialized in a classic novel. Back in the mid-19th century, New Bedford was one of the world's whaling capitals. The whaling industry, of course, is long gone, but New Bedford is still drawing in fans of the world's most famous leviathan, Moby Dick. John Bender from the Public's Radio has our story. Even if you haven't read Herman Melville's 1851 novel, Moby Dick, you probably know the story. A man named Ishmael hops aboard a ship with a colorful crew in search of a white whale. Lydia Peel is a big fan. If you let Moby Dick into your life, it changes your life. Now Peel is in New Bedford, the city that helped inspire Melville's novel. She's here for the annual Moby Dick Marathon, 24 hours straight of reading every single word of the book. The words of Moby Dick just, like no other book, inspire me to read it aloud. And she's not alone. Each year, hundreds of fans gather to listen to the story, many following along with their own dog-eared copies. As most young candidates for the pains and penalties of whaling stop at this same New Bedford, thence to embark on their voyage. Organizers say the marathon has ballooned in recent years, with visitors from across the globe and a wait list of hopeful readers. Lydia Peels read the novel four times and counting. She flew from Nashville through a snowstorm for this. Yes, I was prepared to come if I had to hike here. As nearby waterfront cities like Portsmouth, New Hampshire and Portland, Maine cash in on a growing tourism industry, New Bedford's tourism director, Dagny Ashley, hopes to lure more visitors with this famous literary connection. When we're trying to promote New Bedford and sell New Bedford, as soon as we say Moby Dick, you know, the light bulb goes on. That's because the book, long a staple on high school reading lists, is having a moment, says UConn literature professor Mary Burkaw. 
Um, Moby Dick is definitely, you know, part of a new resurgence. There's such, such a huge interest in it right now. It's just astounding. So why does this epic novel have such staying power? I think it's partly the the big fundamental questions that Melville's asking in the book. Somehow they keep appealing to people. Even in a day when when people do social media, when things are shorter and simpler, this book is still you know, going. And city tourism officials say the number of people visiting their city has increased in the last several years. New Bedford is well suited to capitalize on interest in the book. Once the whaling capital of the world, the city is dotted with emblems of its past. You can still visit the Seaman's Bethel just across the street from the Whaling Museum, a house of worship built to encourage morality in wayward sailors. Visitors still make the pilgrimage to see the pew where Herman Melville once prayed. So it's thought that this is where Herman Melville sat and um, got his inspiration for the book. In the past year, the Bethel drew more than 20,000 visitors. And there are more modern additions to the roster of Melville-themed attractions. You can grab a bite to eat at Whaler's Tavern or drink a pint at the newly opened Moby Dick Brewing Company. That's a hand pump. It's the old English what they call cask engine. Brewmaster Scott Brunel pours a freshly tapped keg of English porter called Glorious Goni, a slang term for an albatross. All the beers here are named for parts of the book, including the Irish amber, Ish My Ale. Get it? So has Brunel, a New Bedford native, read the book? If you grew up around here, you have to read it, usually your sophomore year, I believe. Back then, I thought it was very long and <laughs> a little long-winded. Brunel says he's read it since he got the job here, and he appreciated it more the second time. Superfan Lydia Peel says she's already thinking about reading Moby Dick again. At its heart, it is a book about America, and the whale ship, of course, is this beautiful microcosm of the world. There's men on that whale ship from all corners of the globe, all religions, all faiths, all races, and... You know, they're all out there together, and they're, uh, they're forced to get along. Now that's an idea worth raising a glass for. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Bender. The 23rd annual Moby Dick Marathon will take place in New Bedford on January 4th through the 6th. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England, and if you like what you hear, give us a rating or a review on iTunes. And you can follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Solarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. The theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Public's Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.